And it almost seems silly to, to have to move on from that, that we should just say that every week, every single week, that we have victory in Christ, we are more than conquerors, we are super conquerors in Christ. But, but, Paul draws us forward, and we're moving into Romans 9. Romans 9. And so, the, the question is, where do, where do you go from there? Where do you go from, from the victories of the gospel that everything is said and done in the name of Jesus? Well, Paul... Paul's immediate thought is to the unbeliever. The one who does not believe in the name of Jesus. Who cannot claim for himself these promises. Who does not have someone to, to defend him in heaven. To judge him as righteous. The unbeliever who does not believe in these things. And Paul wants to ask the question essentially is, is that what's the difference between the believer and the unbeliever? Why does one person come to faith and another not? What really distinguishes the two? What's happening in the hearts of these two people? That's our question this morning. He specifically has it about Israel. He has this burden for Israel that they might come to faith and, and he's, he's wrestling with the fact that they have not. And we need to wrestle with that same thing. Why have some here believed and why have others not? So let's look at Romans 9 verses 1 through 13. Romans 9, verses 1 through 13. Read with me. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they had not yet been born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. All right. This is a, this is a big passage. This is a heavy passage. Um, and we receive these words, trusting our Lord and our Savior and our God. So, First, first, we're going to see Paul's, Paul's response. How does he respond to the glories of last week, the glories of what Jesus Christ has done? There's no one to condemn, no one to accuse. We expect for him to be elated and rejoicing and, and calling out in praises to God. But instead, he has exactly the opposite response. Verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit 
that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. He's actually, he's destroyed by this gospel. He's cut to the heart. And you can see the, the burden of the language here. Great sorrow and unceasing anguish. He's, he's struggling. And why is he feeling this, this great sorrow? Verse 3. That I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He is burdened by the fact that there are fellow brothers, fellow Israelites, who do not have access to these promises. That they have not believed in the name of Jesus. And so, they do not have someone to, to justify them. They do not have someone to, to destroy who would ever come before them. They do not have a savior. And he is crushed by that fact. And he has, he has to even tell them he, that he's not faking it though. He isn't faking it. He, it's kind of weird that he says it. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. These aren't crocodile tears. He's, he's not, not, not feeling this way because he's supposed to. He actually feels this way for the lost. He is burdened and he is sorrowed over the fact that they, they have not come to faith in Christ. And we're convicted by that because oftentimes we, we know we're supposed to feel the burden of a loss. But if we are honest, we, we can sometimes feel like that's a, that's a lie, that our heart is not burdened. Or if our conscience is honest and we're, we're looking at our heart, we don't really care. But Paul, Paul, he really does care. He loves those who are lost. And, and look what he says. Look, he says, I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. What does that mean? This is Paul, Paul actually saying, I would be damned to hell for the sake of my brothers being sent to heaven. That I would take the curse. I would, I would, if I could give them Christ, I would, I'd be willing to lose him. Now that's probably one of the most astounding things that is said in the, in the whole Bible. That he'd be willing to, to give up his salvation. That he'd give up everything. This is Paul. This is the only thing he has. He's trying to convince us over and over that the, the salvation is everything. He would give it to his brothers. He would give it to them that he might be accursed and cut off from Christ. Now what do we do with that? I am, I'm destroyed by that. And I think all of us are destroyed by that. That I think of what, what am I willing to give that those who don't know Christ might be saved? And I'm convicted very, very little. And I look practically in my life and I say, okay, I, am I willing to be embarrassed to have like an awkward conversation with someone about Christ? Am I willing to, to slow down a little bit and just talk to someone? But I, I don't know how I could ever say that I'd be willing to be accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of those who are unbelievers. All right. 
what do we do with this? I think first, first we, have to, we have to look at what are our common responses to unbelievers? How do we tend to respond? I think we can respond with, with pride. That we've believed and they have not. That, that we've seen the truth and they've, they've deceived themselves or been kind of blissfully ignorant of the truth. Or maybe we're angry. We're angry at the unbeliever. That how dare they not see Christ? How dare they, they not uphold the, the law of God? Some of us might even say that, that this is America. This is, this is the land of Christians. Like they, they, they have to believe. Or they, they shouldn't be here. Or maybe it even goes to judgment. And we take some, some blissful thought of, well, well they'll, they'll pay for it in the end. That, yeah, they, they, don't, they don't believe and, and we'll see what will come of them. All right, Romans 9 is a very difficult passage. It's a devastating passage. And before we can move on to the theology of this passage, we need to understand the heart of Paul. We have no right to talk about the theology of this passage if we don't have this heart. That we have no right to talk about the, the unbeliever and, and why they have not believed if we are not broken to the heart because of it. And the problem is that I can't, I can't give you that sorrow in your heart for the unbeliever. I can't muster it up in my heart that the Spirit has to do that. That Jesus Christ has to do that. You need to ask him to do that. Alright, but what can I give you? What can I give you? I can give you a, a correct understanding of, of what the unbeliever what, it, what his life is. Why he is the way he is. Why she is the way she is. Why is the unbeliever an unbeliever? Alright, let's keep going. Verse 4. Verse 4 throws us in and, and Paul gives us the, the wrong answer. Unbelievers are not unbelievers because they don't have access to the truth or because they haven't been grown up in it. They haven't known it all their lives. That if only they were born into it, they would be believers. Paul kills that notion. He kills it. He kills it dead by using the Israelites as an example, as an example of those who were promised everything. They had all the truth. They had everything they could get about salvation. And yet they did not believe. Look at verse 4. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. The Israelites, they are the first ones called the people of God. The sons of God long before Jesus ever came. That they were adopted as a nation. And it was their glory that was put on display that they, they saw the exodus. They saw the pillar of fire and clouds. They saw the Red Sea part. That every single promise in the Old Testament was made to the Israelites. That the law was kept by them. They, they preserved every, every jot and tittle, every little dot of the law. They memorized it from a young age. They had everything. They had everything. 
far better than you and I have. They knew it better. They knew it from experience. They knew it from their culture. Even more, verse 5, to them belong the patriarchs. From their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So from the very beginning, the very first believers, Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, they knew the one true God. And when it comes to the Savior, the Savior was actually an Israelite, just like they were. All experience, all exposure should have led them to faith. And that's where we have to admit, we have to admit that exposure is, is good. To know the promises is good. To have the covenant is good. To have the law is good. But it's not enough. That that is never enough. And the difference between a believer and an unbeliever is not that, that one got the promises, one heard the law, one was raised in it, and the other was not. That has never been the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. Now, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? We have to remember that, that we can be very much like Israel. That we as the church parallel Israel. And, and we were raised, many of us, on these promises. That we had the covenant. We have the, prom well, the, the law. We have the glory. We have the adoption. But just because you were raised in it doesn't mean that you, you know Christ. That being raised in it is not what makes you a believer. And if that's what you're looking to and that's what you're depending upon, there is no foundation there. All right, and very practically, many of you are parents who raise your children in the church who raised them in the promises. And for some of you, you have not seen your children come to faith. That they have not looked to Christ. I think we have to say with, with utmost clarity, it's not because you didn't raise them right. It's not because you, you didn't give them enough quiet times. You didn't lead family devotionals that you weren't a good enough Christian, a good enough example of them. No. Those are not the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. And we need to let go of those things. And get rid of the guilt, get rid of the accusations, get rid of the condemnation. All right. And parents now, parents now, we do these things. We do these things. We give them the law. We give them grace. We give them the story of Jesus. But we know that it's not enough. And we take nothing for granted. And just because the people sitting next to you are sitting next to you doesn't mean that they know Christ. And that's why we continually and always put up Jesus Christ and encourage and remind each other, look to Jesus, look to Jesus. This is not a tradition that you, you're born into. This is a personal relationship with our Savior. All right. So if exposure is not the difference between a believer and a non-believer, what is? What is? 
look at verse 6. This passage shows that it's, it's election. Election is the difference between an unbeliever and a believer. Verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God had failed. Uh, no, I'm reading the wrong passage. Hang on. <laughs> Oh, thanks, guys. Thanks. <laughs> it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all who are children of Abraham, because they are offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. All right, he's saying that just because you're born of the flesh doesn't mean that the promises were for you. Now, that, that's, that's difficult. That, that there was this nation of Israel according to the flesh, but from the very beginning, from the, from the very beginning of history, that didn't mean that they were the chosen people. That all of them were, were elect, were saved. That wasn't the condition. And he says that that's the, the story from the very beginning. We start with Abraham. Abraham, Father Abraham. Abraham is the father of the faith. He is the first ever believer in Yahweh, the true God. And what does he say about him? Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Just because they were born of Abraham doesn't mean that they are children of Abraham. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Alright, so we have our father Abraham, the very first believer, and he was given this promise that from him the children of God would be born. The child of the promise. The one through whom salvation would come. But the problem is he had two sons. He had one son through Hagar the servant and one son through Sarah. Both of them were his sons according to the flesh. Both of, him were, both of them were flesh and blood of Abraham. But one was a child of the promise, Isaac. And one was just a child of the flesh who inherited the, the blood and the namesake, but no promise, no blessing that that has been the case from the very beginning. It's never been about flesh and blood. All right, we keep going. Then that Isaac, that Isaac had two sons, twin sons by Rebekah. In verse 10, not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they had not yet been born and had done nothing, neither good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told that older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So these two sons, Esau the older, Jacob the younger, and Jacob becomes the child of the promise, of the blessing. The special love of God falls upon Jacob and, and not Esau. 
we see that there's only one difference between these two. In all these cases, there's only one difference between the unbeliever and the believer. The election of God. The election of God. That one is called and one is not. And that makes a difference between the believer and the unbeliever. The election and calling of God. Now we ask, why, why is it that way? How could it be that, that God would choose one and not the other? And he, he tells us, he tells us, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. That election is the only thing that preserves the gospel. We talked about the gospel being, being one of grace. It is a free gift. It is not a work. It is a free gift. It is not a work. Now, if the difference between the believer and unbeliever was that they did the work of believing in Jesus, salvation would be by works. And we would tell people, just do the work of believing in Jesus. That that's the one work that'll save you. You just need to go do it. If that's the case, then the gospel is not a gospel of grace. You elected God. You chose yourself. That you called yourself. It wasn't God in the end. And so this is, this is a devastating reality. But this is what the thing that preserves the gospel. The gospel is one of grace. That is a free gift. It is nothing that you do. The difference between the believer and the unbeliever is election and calling. All right. So the question is, how do you know you're called? How do you know you're called? How do you know that you're elected? How do you know? Jesus. You know by Jesus. That no one is called except by the name of Jesus. That no one is elected except through Jesus. Because Jesus was the first one who was called. He was the elect. He was the only true son. And he was elected to be the savior. He was the only one who deserves to be the son. He's the only one who earned this for himself. And Jesus became the child of the promise. Jesus became the, the one through whom salvation would come. And that the amazing thing is that Jesus already had it all. He had the perfection of salvation. He was good with God in glory. But the reality was he, he mourned over the souls of unbelievers. He was anguished by the fact that they were not saved with unending sorrow. And so Jesus did something about it. And we can see Jesus' heart for the, for the lost. He says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That he looked at those who were unbelievers and his heart broke for them. Or we see, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you are not willing. 
This is Jesus looking about in the city of Jerusalem, the Israelites who are going to kill him and calling out to them and weeping that they were not coming to him, that they would not believe, that they would not repent. And so what does he do? He goes to the cross. That he loves the believers, the unbelievers so much, he goes to the cross. And we saw Paul kind of making this, this wishful statement. I, w- I would be accursed and cut off for my brothers to have salvation. And then Jesus on the cross actually does it. He is cut off from the Lord and accursed for those who are lost. That he experienced the reality of hell so that we might experience the reality of heaven. That he became the, the sin offering so that we might be blessed. He was destroyed so we might be lifted up. That is the heart of Jesus Christ, our Savior. He loves those who are lost and, what, and he saves. If you are called, you are called in the name of Jesus Christ. That's the only way you get called. And if you are feeling the, the draw to Jesus and the love for Jesus and a desire to see the work of Jesus, that is calling. That is election. If it's just this general godness, that's not calling. If it's fascination with the cross and with the work of Jesus, that is calling. That is election. All right. Implications of all this. What does this mean? First for believers. First for believers. Those who have come to faith in Christ, you don't get to boast. You don't get to boast. Because you literally didn't do anything. All right, you didn't do anything. That God shows you before you did anything good or bad, before you did a single good work or bad work, he chose you. Not because of you, but because of his great love. Now, we corrupt that and we boast about it and we act like the unbeliever is so ignorant or dumb or wicked. No. No, we didn't do anything. And if God has not elected, we should be full of sorrow and of mercy. That's the only thing we should be called to be. Secondly, it should, it should sober us. There's a sobering sermon, sorry. <laughs> I think you all knew that. Um, it sobers us. It sobers us with one another. That we don't just take for granted that everyone here believes. That we're always putting up Jesus Christ and saying, believe Jesus, believe Jesus, believe Jesus. It sobers us when we're talking to people about Jesus because we recognize that Something needs to happen that is far above our pay grade that they need to be elected and called. And that we can give the message, but we have no power to save. We need to be sober with our, with our kids. Humbled. That as much as we can do, we cannot save. We cannot elect, we cannot call. We're sober. And finally, we're We're full of amazing worship because we just don't get it. Why would he choose us and not someone else when we know our hearts and we know how wicked we are and we know that we don't deserve it? 
Thank God that he, he chose before we were good or bad because we have been, been terribly wicked. Thank God that he saved us. And thank God for Jesus. All right. What are the implications if you have not believed in Jesus? What are the implications for the, for the non-believer? I know you are here. I, I, I know that. So, first of all, this is not a religion of actions. It's not about knowing all the theology. It's not about growing up in the church and learning the lingo and the slogans. And it's about knowing Jesus Christ, your personal savior. It's about your connection to Jesus. Doesn't matter all the rest. Second implication. I don't know if you're called or not. And no one can tell you if you're called or not. And if you don't believe Christ now, that doesn't mean you're not elect. That, that is totally open. No one knows except God himself. We should never, ever, ever say that, well, no, I, I'm just not elect. God would have to call me. We're creatures. We don't know those things. Final thing is, if you are hearing the call, respond. That if you're seeing Jesus and you're captivated by him, if you're seeing the promises of God that are in Jesus and you want those things, if you want him to take his, your sins away from you, respond to the calling of Jesus. He elects, he calls, he chooses you, and you're called to respond. To repent, to turn to Jesus, to thank him for saving you. That he was accursed he was destroyed for you so that you might have the promises of Romans 8. Let's pray. Father, we like to hold on to that, that last hope that maybe we chose you, maybe we were good in that one decision and Father, you, you take that away from us and and you take it for your glory. It was because of your grace and your grace alone. It was because of the work of Jesus and even the work of Jesus to save us and to, to draw us to yourself. Father, I ask that you would give us great humility. That we would mourn for the unbeliever because, because we do not deserve anything that we have received. And then when we see the unbelieving heart we see ourselves. We see ourselves without grace, without your choosing. And so, Father, I ask that you would send us out. I ask that you would send us out with a, a boldness to proclaim your gospel. Father, you have already been accursed and cut off. We do not have to do that. But, Father, we ask that, that you'd give us a willingness to, to die to ourselves that we've already found salvation, we have found life in you, that we would lose this life for the sake of those who don't know you. Father, would you give us great sorrow in our hearts for those who are not believers? And we thank you that, that you have died for us. Would you help us to die for them? We pray this in Jesus Christ, precious and mighty name.
Give me Jesus. 